0: I mean the needs are huge, the inequalities are huge um, and there is just a kind of burning need for the work that civil society does. To mm-hmm. do the giving very thoughtfully, thinking very much about how you build strong and long-term relationships with organisations, how you make really good quality decisions. How you open yourself up and be very transparent, um, how you really root yourself in the sectors that you work in. I don't think it's a bad thing for anybody who's in a leadership position at a kind of philanthropic organization to have some experience on the other end. You know, the, the need to kind of bring in every single thousand pound that slightly shattering feeling when you've put your dreams into a funding proposal that just gets turned down flat with a with a very curt letter
1: purposely podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place here's your host mark longbottom paul a really warm welcome to purposely podcast thank you mark it's great to be with you I normally start by asking people about their jobs or their companies. I thought somewhere really strange to start, which is, how did you get your name? <laughs> well, we share uh, sort of uh, a little bit
0: of our name, don't we? Uh, we do. Uh, yeah, well, it's a Lancastrian name. Um, and uh, so it's got a kind of proud history uh, up there. I think it, I think it derives from uh, kind of Sheep Valley. Uh, and uh, but when I was at primary school, I was much mocked and derided for it. Um, but uh, I've, I've come to grow into it and quite, quite like it, actually.
1: It's distinctive, at least. It's interesting, because my name's from the same part of the world, and I think it's kind of helped to find me. Has it helped to find you? Did it lead to some sort of early bullying, but then became, like you say, a unique part of who you are?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, perhaps it kind of leads to early resilience, Um, I love the links to industrial Lancashire. That's where my family are from and that most kind of sturdy working class community. So I feel quite proud of that. And um, I I like to think that if there's a long list of names of people, you sort of stand out, you know, before you've said or done or thought anything already You're slightly distinctive. Um, So, yeah, no, I wouldn't change it. I mean, if you ask my daughters, they're probably not quite as excited about the name as I am, but... uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I understand that. And you're at an OBE. That, I bet that was a, a great moment. How did, what did you get your OBE title from? Uh,
0: yeah, so I'm mean, technically for services to charity. I mean, these things are strange, Mark, actually. Um, I, you know, uh, I, you never feel as if you quite deserve them. You're very conscious that whatever you've been deemed worthy to get it for it's generally on the back of a lot of work by other people. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it was actually quite nice to just take a chance to kind of reflect on friends and family who've helped along the way um, and uh, and enjoy the day. Um, I picked up recently at Windsor, actually, I, I, it was delayed because I was meant to pick it up. Um, in the first week of the lockdown, um, way back March last year um, in, in London. And, and in fact, I've only just picked it up a couple of uh, a month or so back. Um, but it was a fun day. It was a fun day. And in the end, I, I stopped apologising and just kind of uh, enjoyed it really.
1: I could just hear that you feel slightly uncomfortable talking about it. And, and that part of it, I love the fact you do. And I predicted that you would. So apologies up front. But um, you're, the, you're the CEO of the Wilson Foundation. Tell me about what they do and what their mission is. One of the things I love about the Wolfson Foundation is the backstory. Um, so, maybe if, if, if that's okay, Mark,
0: I'll just tell you a bit about the backstory and then dive into what we're doing now. Um, so, the backstory is that it was set up by a man called Isaac Wolfson, whose family came as refugees to Victorian Scotland in the 1890s. And so, Isaac Wolfson was born pretty much into poverty uh, and through kind of force of personality and sheer financial genius built up. huge retail empire but looked at the society that had taken him and his family in and thought that he wanted to uh, to do something to give back philanthropically so in the 1950s he set up the Wolfson Foundation which right from the beginning but certainly now focuses on education and research quite broadly conceived we fund other organizations and so from those kind of humble Victorian Scottish Beginnings, it's an organisation which um, has given away, we've just announced actually in the last week, we've given away £1 billion, it's about double that in real terms, and we've still got an endowment that we manage um, of a uh, £1 billion. And so all of that funding has gone into organisations, large and small, but generally with this undercutting theme uh, that they're supporting education in, in society. Um, so it's this kind of yeah. a, a story that I continue to find inspiring, actually. And how did they make their money, the Wolfson family? The money was through, um, through retail. Um, um, Isaac Wolfson sort of set up uh, an organisation called Great Universal Stores. He was obviously a man of vision because when he set it up, it wasn't particularly universal or great. He built it to being the biggest uh, retail conglomerate in Europe. And one of the things they really pioneered um, was the catalogue shopping boom, sort of in the period just before and just after the Second World War. So in a sense, the kind of internet shopping boom of that period where, you know, every every house could have a catalogue and order from the comfort of your armchair. Um, And so that was where the, the funds were generated. And indeed, for the first sort of 30, 40 years of our existence, our endowment was in great universal stores. Um, but now we're, I mean, we're long since um, a kind of completely independent charity that, um, you know, has nothing to do particularly with any business. You know, we have an endowment that's
1: managed like any other endowment. Um, but that's the backstory. And a long-term approach to philanthropy. And I love the fact that you've effectively turned, was it 5 million, the initial investment into the foundation? Um, and like you say, celebrating a billion Um, pounds donated recently, Uh, real success story in terms of philanthropy and and added significant number of um, capital projects that have have done good.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and I suppose that is the kind of power of long-term philanthropy. If you invest wisely um, and hopefully in a way that's thoughtful and ethical, um, yeah, that initial, you're quite right, Mark, initial chunk of money that was about five million in the 1950s is, is a bit like the kind of golden goose that has kept on giving or rather the goose that keeps laying the golden eggs. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the sum is a billion. And, and you mentioned the number of projects, which, you know, depending how you calculate it, sort of over 12,000 projects, mainly um, helping organizations when they need new buildings or they need refurbishment. But a whole raft of different things over the years, as you can uh, as you can imagine. And I think one of the things that the foundation has tried to do, and it's for others to judge whether we've done this successfully, is to do the giving very thoughtfully, thinking very much about how you build strong and long-term relationships with organizations, how you make really good quality decisions, how you open yourself up and be very transparent, um, how you really root yourself in the sectors that you work in. A kind of humility, a humility is maybe an overused word, but a real attempt to be very humble and grounded and rooted in the communities that we fund. So that, that's that been the other philosophy that sort of, if, if you like, sits behind the the statistics, which can be a little bit
1: overwhelming in a way. In terms of the foundation, and in terms of um, you know the the recent challenge of, of COVID, did the longer term approach to philanthropy come under challenge, and and with the shorter term, because a lot of charities are just trying to keep the lights on, for example, and the part that you played in the response of, of COVID.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's a really interesting question. Now, at what point do you look at an endowment and think, well, here's a crisis, we've just got to spend, and we've got to we've got to get rid of the endowment. I think one of, one of the advantages of having a very long-term view is that when you have a, a really significant crisis like we've had in the last couple of years, you can dig into the endowment. So, and, and also actually you can work flexibly in a way that, you know, maybe government funding is, is it's a little bit more difficult to, to act flexibly. So, and one of the things that we did last year, for example, is at very short notice and to great, great, great credit of my staff team who worked unbelievably hard, we just pumped an extra £10 million of completely unrestricted funding into organisations and sectors that were really, really struggling at that point. As you say, you know, existential threat to some organisations just to keep the lights on. So I think that long term horizon is really, really helpful in being able to kind of flex, if you like. And, in, a, in you know, to be counter-cyclical, if you like, at a time when organisations are really struggling for income to invest more. What I argue against, um, and in fact I've just, I've just put a blog out this week arguing against it, is, is, is this argument that there's an ethical argument for every endowed charity to spend out. Because I think the advantage of having a long-term horizon is that when the crisis comes... You can accelerate your funding. You can't do that, of course, if you spent it all in the last crisis. So I think a long-term horizon has its advantages. It's not necessarily for every organisation. There are some organisations that are very targeted, very focused. They've got an endowment or philanthropic income, and they want to spend it in a very targeted way, and that's great. But there is a counter-argument for organisations like Wolfson that year on year just keep plugging away. Um, and then can accelerate a bit when there are real needs yeah
1: absolutely and now moving away to from wolfson to focus a bit on on yourself and another a founder journey really um savannah education trust and your involvement in that tell us about that oh thanks mark um yeah it's the opposite end of the
0: scale in a way from wolfson but what it does hold in common is education um and, and, and Although philanthropy and the work that Wolfson does really excites me, the thing that, if you like, gets me out of bed in the morning is access to basic education in Africa. And about 15 years ago, um, uh, with, with a friend, I set up an organization working in West Africa, really based on our experiences of traveling out there and our engagement with local communities on the border between Burkina Faso and Ghana and those communities facing very rich communities in some ways socially rich but facing huge challenges in terms of poverty and crucially having no access at all to education and so having got to know the communities um, they made an approach to us to ask whether we would be willing to work with them to build in the first instance a school basic school providing basic education. Um, and our initial response to that was that, you know, uh, this wasn't our line of business. We, You know, what could we do? But we came away, thought about it quite carefully. And in the end, having researched models and talked to a lot of other organizations, investigated whether we'd get anybody else, any other organization interested. We said that we would uh, indeed try and create a community school that was sustainable in a single village up there in uh, on the on the borderland of Northern Ghana, um, which was successfully built and was so successful actually, and became such a kind of beacon in a way um, that we took the model and have rolled it out. And so there's a whole network of schools up in Northern Ghana now, which are Savannah schools, Savannah Education Trust schools, um, providing um, clean water and an education to kids. And what's been the most striking thing really mark there is and the most gratifying thing is to see a situation where those communities where when we first started working just under one in four of the children were dying before their fifth birthday being completely transformed completely transformed by the by the power of community action working in partnership with the local church the local government and above all you know, the parents and the community themselves, um, creating these lovely schools, um, which, as I say, provide clean water, a meal every day, and a reasonable quality of education that's very relevant and pertinent to the local area with things like agricultural training and so on. And the transformative impact of that is even greater than I'd anticipated, actually, mm. Um uh, and, uh, and, and despite the challenges of the last couple of years, you know, very different challenges to the challenges that somewhere like Wilson has faced, um, the work continues to grow and to flourish out there.
1: And so you have UK-based charities, isn't it, with UK-based trustees raising money here but delivering that to the services on the ground?
0: Yeah, so, so the division of labour is that the strategy is, is, is set with a kind of strategy team sat between Ghana and the UK, the role of the UK really is awareness raising and fundraising, and then the work is delivered on the ground by um, by Ghanaians. So that's the that's the model. But you're right; it's registered in the in the UK. Um, and what's quite interesting about the model is that they are commun- they are genuinely community schools. So they they're, they're the um, the schools themselves are funded by government but they are vested in the local community so the local community know that they own them and savannah in a sense is the midwife if you like um, so
1: that's the model which has been which has been really successful actually and you haven't been able to visit ghana in, in the last 18 months i imagine have you no my last visit was in
0: 2019 um and uh, I mean, that's a kind of personal sadness to me in terms of the work. I don't think it makes, you know, like like all of these charities, if it needed me on the ground very often, probably something would be going wrong. You know, if, uh, but nonetheless, um, it will be very lovely to be able to get back out there again and, and uh, sit around with the team out there. Um, and, and, uh, and also, of course, go into the schools and, and, and spend a bit of time with the, the teachers and, 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 and the kids out there. Um, so who knows, who knows when it will become uh, more straightforward to shuttle around the world again. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, even in that very remote area, Mark, um, we're now having Zoom meetings with, uh, with the teams out there. So, you know, the, the video conference call is ubiquitous it doesn't matter <laughs> even if you're in the most remote <laughs> and rural part of sub-saharan africa it's still
1: uh, you can yeah, you can't you, get away you from you can, them <laughs> you can't get away you can't get away that's right yeah <laughs> and what a lot of people might not know is you also um had a stint as a trustee or a chairman chairman of mercy ships
0: yeah i'm still involved actually I, and 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 you know i I've talked about Wolfson, which is in a sense a kind of juggernaut in uh, charity terms. And then Savannah, which is very grassroots and uh, relatively small income. And Mercy Ships, I suppose you'd put somewhere in the middle. I don't know how much um, your listeners will be aware of Mercy Ships, but it's, um, it, it's it's a charity, an international charity, that runs the largest hospital ships in the world. And we've, we've now got two. Uh, that float along the ports uh, of uh, Africa um, and really provide a fully functioning training hospital um, to provide not just really high quality surgical care for people who need it, but also training for local healthcare professionals as well. Um, So it's a really exciting charity um, doing great work. And it's it's been a great privilege actually to be involved. I mean, I'm not a medic, uh, but I hugely admire the vast numbers of volunteers and also local workers who sort of come together in a united nations on board the ship to provide hope and healing for people who just have no other
1: options, actually,
0: in uh, countries, particularly along the west coast of uh, of Africa.
1: You went to Oxford Jeannie. You did a degree in history and then um, a master's in history. How did you end it up? heading off in terms of doing a sort of for-purpose career like tell us a bit about your career and how you got to where you are today yeah I remember Michael
0: Heseltine the British politician sort of famously when he was at university wrote that on back of an envelope you know his exact career progression that would take him through business to politics to prime minister and there wasn't a similar envelope for me really um (laughs) I I um I guess coming out of university, though, I was quite interested in philanthropy. Um, you know, this sort of sense of how you take private money and think about how you can use it for public good. And it did always seem to me a really intriguing sector because it sort of sits on the edge of um, civil society, it sits on the edge of sort of wealth creation and entrepreneurship, and actually, particularly when you're working at reasonable scale, like Wolfson is, it also sits on the edge of public policy. So, you know, you've got the private sector, you've got the public sector, and then you've got civil society, sort of, and, and, and philanthropy, I think particularly the larger organisations and the ones that are trying to be really thoughtful, sit there on on, on the edge of it. Um, and so... Um, you know, in a sense, it was uh, I, I partly fell into it. But in a sense, it was that reflection that that was really interesting and actually how people can use wealth in creative ways to do remarkable things. So that's how I fell into Wolfson. And then Savannah really kind of caught hold of me and, and tapped me on on my shoulder. Um, and, you know, having spent time in those communities and having kind of been asked directly to be involved there was a sort of sense of not being able to walk away. And I guess in, in that sense, my personal face as a Christian made it more difficult to walk away from that. It makes it sound as if I wanted to, but, but, um, but, but you know, so I think like a lot of people, it's, it, it's subsequently been partly kind of planning and partly just doors opening. But I've never regretted working and spending my kind of day job time doing something which I feel very passionately about and which excites me and which hopefully in some small way has a, has a, has a beneficial impact on
1: society. Um, you know, what, what could be more exciting, right, Mark? Absolutely. And how's that changed you? How does it make you the parent you are today? So you've got, you've got children and do you find yourself kind of installing some of values on them quite deliberately or?
0: Yeah. So I've got four daughters,
1: Mark. So I'm a
0: feminist, both by um, instinct inclination but also uh, through through my through my daughters, pure need um, through pure need Look, I, it's difficult to talk as a parent isn't it because I don't think you know none of us think we're kind of fabulous parents but I do hope that that they will grow up with a view of the world which understands that you know we are all connected uh, that if you see a need in society if you see a need in a friend if you see a need in somebody who you know i hope that their instinct will be to walk towards that need rather than walk away from it um uh and uh yeah and, and also actually they've been you know i set i set up savannah at about the same time as lily our oldest was born um and so in a sense they've they've kind of been on that journey as a family uh together with me um, they've seen it grow, they've seen the impact. Uh, as we sit around our meal table, there's a kind of picture up of, of some of the kids enjoying their own meal. And so, yeah, I hope by by osmosis, if not by uh, me kind of ramming these points down their throats, some of that might rub off actually onto the way that they think and the way that they act.
1: It must be quite an unusual setup sometimes, because on on one hand, you know, you're the gatekeeper on you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds and whether a charity is successful in delivering a project or not. And then you sort of put on another cap, which is, you know, raising smaller amounts of money to ensure you can do life-changing work in Africa. Do you, so do you sort of pinch yourself sometimes and think about how different that feels and how how different people are in their approach to you, depending on what hat you're wearing? Yeah, it is. It is.
0: And sometimes the kind of contrasts are quite striking and quite interesting. I think there's a couple of things to say in terms of that, Mark. I mean, the first is I don't think it's a bad thing for anybody who's in a leadership position at a kind of philanthropic organization to have some experience on the other end. You know, the, the need to kind of bring in every single thousand pounds, that slightly shattering feeling when you've put your dreams into a funding proposal that just gets turned down flat with a with a very curt letter um so i don't think it you know uh, um and in fact in terms of my senior team at wilson i I really encourage them where where at all possible to kind of get involved in volunteering for frontline uh, charities because i think it does give you that perspective um but but the other thing is you know i hope as well it doesn't make me complacent in terms of the sums of money that Wolfson is able to give away. Um, you know, last year in cash terms we paid out forty-five million, um, and it I suppose would be easy to get blase about a grant of ten thousand or grant of twenty-five thousand. You know, as if somehow this is small money. But I think the other thing about Savannah is is that it reminds you that for a lot of grassroots charities those. Chunks of money, those tens and twenty thousands, are really, really important. Can be transformative, um, and therefore, you know, in terms of philanthropic spend, you need to be thoughtful and considered in terms of where you're putting those, um, as, as well as, if you like, the bigger, the bigger chunks of money. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know whether that answers your question, Mark. But you're right. Sometimes there is a sort of a, a, almost a slight disconnect between these two different worlds. Um, It's surreal for you, though, right? Very surreal. When I first started uh, Savannah, I don't know what the stats are now, but the total assets of the Wilson Foundation were about 30% of the GDP of Burkina Faso, which is a country of, what, 10 to 15 million people. And you just kind of look at that and think, wow, you know, what a strange world in a way we live in. Um, I don't know what the stats are now. I'm hoping that, although Burkina's been through difficult years since, that, the, the, you
1: know, the, st- the statistic wouldn't be quite so striking now. And what do you do when you're not working? So you or being a chairman or a trustee, what do you do in your downtime? Um, I'm a, I'm a squash player. Um,
0: quite a bad squash player, actually, Mark, but, you know, an enthusiastic one. And, and actually, one of the things that i love during lockdown um has been uh, I, uh, the office wolfson office is up in london but we're talking today i'm down here sort of south of london down in sussex and i've always enjoyed walking out in the countryside but that's really come to to life in the last couple of years trying to persuade as many of my family as possible to come with me but if i can't just on my own putting walking boots on and just heading out into the lovely english countryside and finding new walking trails and just spending a bit of time uh out with nature and uh, a bit of time to think and a bit of headspace um yeah i can't think of anything nicer than that actually um particularly on a kind of sunny spring day um i say that looking out my window on
1: gloom and darkness at the moment and uh, what is what do you think the, the future is for um, they call it in the UK the third sector as we head towards wrapping up what's you know like I, I love the fact that you talk about being a humble funder and, and long term and, and working in partnership with others you know what's your thought around charities being reliant on on grant money or you know donations um, and, and maybe that switch to more sustainable source of income or are there changes afoot do you think
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the first probably obvious thing to say is that civil society is is needed more now than certainly at any time, I think, during my lifetime in the UK. I mean, the needs are huge, the inequalities are huge, um, and there is just a kind of burning need for the work that civil society does. And I think it is healthy for the third sector to continue to have a balance of funding. You know, some will come from government, some will come from kind of earned income but a large chunk will always need to come from a combination of fundraise sources of which large institutional philanthropy will be a part. I think there's going to be an increased scrutiny on that. Um, you know, that started, I know you spoke to Beth Breeze recently. I think there's a need for us to articulate the case for philanthropy, but really crucially to articulate the case for funding sources which are Uh, thoughtful, ethical, and really do work in partnership and are rooted in the sectors that they kind of purport to serve. So I'm hoping that, you know, the pandemic will have catalyzed actually a lot of that. Um, And so that whatever other changes we see, you know, civil society remains at the heart of communities doing great work and has a variety of funding sources. But the grant funding that comes in is a crucial slug of that and is more and more effective and thoughtful um, and rooted, if you like, um, as, as we go forward. So that, that, that to my mind, would be the, the kind of the ideal as we move into the next
1: year or two. Well, Amasa, thank you for joining me on purposely. Really appreciate your time. And um, good luck with Savannah and Wolfson. And what comes next? Oh,
0: thank you, Mark. It's been so nice to uh,
1: have a chat to you. And thank you for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.